bestbookbits.com brings you the book summary of Indefensive Food by Michael Pollan. Book summary, what's in it for me? Find out why focusing on nutrition rather than food leads to generally poorer health. Why would we need any help in choosing which food to put in our bodies? We all recognize food when we see it, or do we? In the past 50 years or so, a whole industry has developed around the idea of nutritionism, an approach to eating based not on food, but on nutrients. This led to what we now call the Western diet, a diet made up of mainly processed foods stripped of their original nutrients and repackaged as healthy alternative food products. The effect on this diet on our health has been nothing less than astonishing. Indeed, the industrialization of food and the Western diet are the principal reason for the large number of chronic heart diseases in the Western world. The rise of nutritionism has also made it difficult for consumers to distinguish truly healthy foods from those that merely claim to be so. The result is that we need nutritionists to interpret the ingredient labels of the food products we fill our shopping carts with. In this book summary, you'll learn that it's possible to escape the dominant dietary approach that nutritionism has become and develop an instead a more traditional and healthier way of eating. Also in the book summary, you'll learn that much dietary advice offered today is based on little more than hypothesis. Why we stopped talking about food and starting the talking about nutrients, and why we shouldn't eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't. Summary part one, in the 20th century, we began to talk about consuming nutrients rather than eating food. Think back to the last time you wanted to start following a healthier diet. Did you think, I'll start eating carrots and cucumbers and stop eating beef and cheese? Or did you think, I need to cut out saturated fats and starchy carbohydrates and eat lots more vitamins and minerals instead? If you like most people, the details of your new diet were expressed in the language of nutrients rather than specific foods. But when did this shift in focus happen, and why? In the second half of the 20th century, the food industry and the US government shifted their focus from food to nutrients. Around 1950, a number of scientists believed that the consumption of fat and cholesterol, i.e. meat and dairy products, were responsible for the rise in heart disease. They called this the lipid hypothesis. Then in 1968, the US government set up the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, which produced a report in 1977, the dietary goals for the United States, based largely on the lipid hypothesis. One goal of the committee was to advise people to reduce their consumption of meat and dairy products in order to prevent heart problems. However, the head of the committee, Senator George McGovern, happened to own many cattle ranches. Recommending that people should cut out red meat would have been damaging both to his interest and those of the powerful food lobbyist. So the wording of the committee's recommendations was changed. Where they'd previously advised don't eat meat and dairy products, they were instead coerced to advise people to choose meats, poultry and fish that will reduce saturated fat intake. Such a recommendation was as much smaller threat to the food industry. And with this, the discourse of diets began to change. We started to talk about healthy eating, not in terms of what foods to eat, but in terms of nutrients. Summary part two, the claim that nutrients determine a food's healthiness can lead us to misinterpret its actual health content. You're at the supermarket looking to buy pasta and you have two choices. One is imitation pasta and the other is a low-carb pasta. Which would you choose? Most people would go with what appears to be the healthier choice, the low-carb option. Yet surprisingly, 
both types of pasta are essentially the same. They're both highly processed imitations of actual pasta. But why is it that we don't tend to recognize this? Because at this point in our history, we need nutritionists to interpret nutrition for us. Nutritionism is like a religion. We follow commands that we struggle to comprehend, and we need preacher-like nutritionists to tell us how to interpret those mysterious commands, whether it concerns the amount of vitamin B12 to consume daily, or why potassium is so important. Nutritionists translate this information for us in one way only, that the main goal of the eating is to maintain physical health. This promotes an almost religious dualism of good versus bad nutrition, protein versus carbs, carbs versus fat, animal proteins versus plant protein, and so on. Aside from the fact that we need professional help in making decisions about nutrition, it may seem that there's little wrong with focusing on nutrients. However, if we learn to judge food by its nutrients, we may consider even nutrient-rich processed food to be healthier for us than real food. In 1938, the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act imposed strict rules on the marketing of imitation food products. One rule was that the word imitation was to appear on packaging of any such product. Naturally, the food industry fought this decision, and at a time when adulted food was uncommon, labeling a food product as an imitation was seen as the kiss of death. Then in 1973, the food industry used their influence to change the rule so that the imitation food could be marketed without using the dreaded I word, as long as the imitation wasn't nutritionally inferior. That's how we eventually entered an era in which adulted food products like healthier imitation pasta came to be considered food. Summary part three. Based on just a hypothesis, the dietary goals of the US cleared the path for a golden age in food science. The surprisingly truth about today's sophisticated food science is that the original dietary goals of 1977, which initiated it, were based not on concrete findings, but on a mere hypothesis. New research shows that the lipid hypothesis, which associated chronic heart diseases, CHD, with saturated fat and dairy products was in fact based on two unconvincing studies. The actual link between dietary cholesterol and CHD is a thin one indeed. So why did the Committee of Nutrition and Human Needs produce such guidelines? The fact is, they were under pressure from the food industry which stood to benefit from the publication of that advice. Following the US dietary goals meant that people would have to replace certain foods with others. So as recommended, they reduced their saturated fat intake, but added processed foods to their plate. The main message, as people understood it, was eat more low-fat products. Since the 1970s, nutritionism, i.e. food science, has become the dominant approach to food. Low-fat, no-cholesterol, high-fiber foods started to pop up everywhere. Even simple foods like mayonnaise and yogurt, which previously contained just three ingredients, were now fortified with a list of new additives to make them more nutritious. Besides altering certain food products, scientists were able to apply a nutritionist dietary approach to animals, which enabled them breeding of leaner cattle and pigs. This meant that even beef and pork could be regarded as part of a low-fat diet. Around the same time, one group of foods that could not be altered was neglected, whole foods such as carrots, bananas, and potatoes. With the rise of food science, we entered a strange period in which producers could make their products appear healthy 
simply by adding healthy nutrients. To them, while all natural healthy foods were neglected, after all, it's far easier to stick a healthy label on a Lucky Charms cereal box than on a carrot. As this shows, nutritionism might be the best thing to ever happen to the food industry, but is it good for us? Summary Part 4, sacrificing pleasure-based diets for a scientific dietary approach has not had any noticeable effect on our health. If you've ever stopped eating a favorite food just because you were told it was bad for you, then you're like most Americans, a typical victim of nutritionism. Nutritionism has caused us to sacrifice the pleasure of eating for a more scientific approach to food. In basic terms, nutritionism tells us what we should eat more of and what we should avoid. To do your shopping right, you need to be up to the latest scientific research and learn to decipher increasingly complicated ingredients labels. By trying to enjoy food that's been engineered towards such scientific objectives is futile. That food simply isn't created with taste as a priority. In fact, nutrism has made us think of the most pleasant ingredient of food, fat for example, as toxins. What's more, to make our food choices more scientific is to rob them of their natural origins and history. In the past, our diet was something we learned through our culture and personal taste. But the West tends not to eat this way anymore. A saving grace of nutrism should be that our physical health is improving, yet that's not the case. Even though we made the shift from a pleasure-based diet to a more scientific dietary approach under the pretense that it would bring better health, the actual results were unconvincing. For instance, the massive increase of low-fat products on the market has coincided with an astonishing increase in obesity and diabetes in America. On the advice of nutritionists, we exchange fats for carbohydrates, yet carbs interfere with the metabolism in ways that increase our hunger, causing us to overeat. As for the main goal of nutritionism, a reduction in heart disease, deaths from heart disease have fallen 50% since 1969, a fact that low-fat campaigns have as their motto. However, though such deaths declined significantly, hospital admissions for heart attacks did not. This suggests that the cause of decline is not the change in our diet, but in the improvement in medical care. The failings of nutritionism reveal that we're in need of a new way of thinking about eating. In the following book summaries, we'll examine the Western diet and its relation to our generally poor physical health. Summary part 5, the main cause of our poor health is the Western diet. Both the advice of nutritionists and the practice of modifying food products to increase their nutrient value distracts us from a major cause of poor health in the developed world, the Western diet. This diet largely consists of processed foods full of refined sugar and flour. However, it doesn't include a significant amount of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. In short, the reason for our general poor health isn't nutrients, it's our diet. Research undertaken around the world has shown that in general, people who avoid the Western diet also avoid its associated health risks. In the 1930s, for example, a dentist named Weston A. Price traveled the world searching for isolated populations that subsisted solely on a native diet. He discovered that three populations in places as distinct as the Arctic and Australia, and with equally different diets, had no need for dental care. Those people who weren't exposed to refined flour, sugar, and chemical vegetable oils didn't suffer from the chronic diseases or tooth decay. Furthermore, 
Other studies have shown that when people stop eating the Western diet, their general health dramatically improves. In the 1980s, nutrition researcher Kirin O'Dea performed an experiment in which she asked 10 Aborigines, who had migrated several years before their settlement in Australia and adapted the Western diet, to return to their native lands for several weeks. While living in their settlements, the 10 men had developed type 2 diabetes, elevated levels of triglycerides, which caused heart problems, and increased risks of obesity, as well as hypertension and heart disease. But during their time back on the old grounds, the men returned to their native diet, seafood, birds, and kangaroo, and occasionally turtle, crocodile, and bush honey. By the end of their stay, all 10 had reached a healthy weight and lowered both their blood pressure and the risk factors associated with type 2 diabetes. As this experiment showed, a change in diet rather than nutrients could markedly reduce the risks of developing certain diseases. Summary Part 6. We need to start thinking of food as a relationship and health as the product of being in it. As we've seen, Western A. Price reported the impact on the Western diet around 1939. So why didn't we listen to him all those years ago? The truth is, the food industry has too much power, and for them, Price's conclusions are just too big a threat. What Price concluded is that the common factor of people in good health is a diet compromising fresh foods from animals and plants from nutrient-rich soils. In other words, the issue of diet and health is one of the relationship between food and ecology. Unfortunately, the Western diet is now largely an industrialized process. We know little, if anything, about the locations or soils from which our food is sourced. Yet it is in these very factors that determine a food's healthiness. If the soil is deficient, e.g. polluted or lacking minerals, so will be the grass that grows from it, and the cow that eats the grass, and then when people who drink the milk. Therefore, we need to start thinking of food not as a thing, but as a relationship between the links of the food chain. Physical health is to some degree the product of being a part of these relationships. When the health of one is linked in the food chain is affected, it can impact all the other links. Thus, the health of an individual can't be separated from the health of the whole food network. Summary Part 7. The Achievements of the Industrialized Agriculture, Fast Production, and Long Preservation have come at a high cost. If we investigate the perspective of food as a relationship, it becomes hard not to notice that the Western diet has introduced a number of abrupt changes over the last 150 years. One of the most important was the dietary shift from whole foods, natural to refined foods, processed. But what is refined food? As the food chain has become industrialized, food production has undergone a process of chemical and biological simplification. To make food last longer, it's refined and chemically treated, or in simple terms, its nutrients are taken away. And although some nutrients are added, they are just a few that food science recognize as important. In order to make longer-lasting flour-based products, bran and germ, wheat source of nutrients, are removed when refining flour. Yet this simplification of food has introduced a quantity over quality approach to a healthy diet. Indeed, studies show that today you'll have to eat three apples to get the same amount of iron provided by one apple in 1940. The history of refining whole foods has been one of seeking ways to make these foods more durable and portable and quicker at releasing their energy. 
Meanwhile, nutritional content has fallen by the wayside. People have been refining grain since the Industrial Revolution. For example, to get white flour from wheat, white flour is finer than whole wheat flour and has a longer shelf life. It's also quicker to turn into glucose, our preferred brain fuel. However, white flour has no nutritional value, so as its use becomes more widespread, devastating epidemics of diseases like pellagra and beriberi followed caused by deficiencies of the vitamin that the extracted germ would have contributed. For years, scientists have known that refined carbohydrates increase the risk of developing several chronic diseases, such as diabetes and heart disease, and that whole grains reduce that risk. But at this point in our history, whole grains are not recognized as part of the Western diet. Summary parts 8, we need to escape the Western diet and return to a food culture. Before nutritionism, people received their dietary guidance from their culture. For many people, this responsibility fell specifically to their mothers, as they were the ones that typically passed on the group's food habits to children. And the reason those habits endured was because they tended to keep people healthy. Yet the industrialization of food has practically demolished such a food culture, replacing it with an ineffective food science and the unhealthy Western diet. Instead of looking for alternatives to the Western diet, the food industry has periodically created new theories that claim to find that single problem nutrient to explain the current failings of the Western diet. The food industry needs such theories so that it can regularly redesign and repackage processed food products with every new theory comes a new line of products. The industry benefits from such theories as they give them a license to continue to produce processed foods. And it's not only the food industry that benefits, new theories benefit the health industry too by giving license to create new treatments, drugs, and procedures to manage diabetes, high blood pressure, and cholesterol. It's far more profitable and a lot easier in general to have a disease in our culture become part of our lifestyle than to radically overhaul the diet of an entire civilization. Clearly, it's imperative that we distance ourselves from the Western diet. A lot of time and energy has been spent on finding the reason that the Western diet doesn't work. This is how the general population comes to know about such scientific terms as the lipid hypothesis, refined carbohydrates, omega-3s, and so on. Yet one thing is clear. People on the Western diet are susceptible to a range of chronic diseases that rarely strike those of more traditional diets. The solution? Stop eating a Western diet and recover food culture. Making a clean break with the Western diet doesn't have to mean embracing nutritionism's guidelines as to which foods and nutrients to eat or avoid, or how many calories to consume. Instead, it's about following a simple set of guidelines for deciding on a meal or shopping for food that will result in a more traditional and healthy diet. Before we jump into the next summary, I just want to thank you for watching and listening. We've done over 600 book summaries here on this channel over the last four years where you can listen on Spotify, watch on YouTube, or check out bestbookbits.com. And if you want me to send you this book summary via email in PDF, click the link below and I'll send it to you straight away. Back with the book summary. Summary part nine, what to eat, choose natural, simple, and unpretentious food. The next time you're at the supermarket doing your weekly food shopping, take a look at what you've thrown in your cart and scan the ingredients of the products. Most likely, you'll be shocked at the number of food products you've selected that are actually just food-like substitutes. The problem is that food science has made the task of identifying real food a very complicated one. 
What you need are some basic principles to follow to ensure that you end up with real food in your shopping cart and in your stomach. First, try not to eat anything your great-grandmother wouldn't eat. Remember, we're trying to go back to our food culture and abandon food science and the Western diet. If your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food, then it's probably not food. For example, imagine handing her a go-groat portable yogurt tub at the dinner table and ask yourself, would she eat it? Second, stay away from the products that have more than five ingredients. Food science, in an effort to make traditional foods more nutritious, is making them more complicated. Yet this doesn't mean they're good for you. Traditionally, bread was made with just flour, yeast, water, and salt. Today, however, it's easy to find breads with more than 20 ingredients. Following the five ingredients or less principle will help you avoid a lot of highly processed products. Third, if a food product makes a health claim, this is a clear sign that you should avoid that product. <laughs> That's actually super funny. Why? Because the majority of these claims depend on questionable and incomplete science. You might recall that not so long ago, companies advertised margarine as a healthier alternative to butter, a claim that we now know is untrue. Moreover, if corn, oil, chips, and sugary breakfast cereals are able to brag about being healthy, it's a sign that health claims are highly corrupt. These three simple rules should help you distinguish real food from the food-like products that manage to pass for food today. Summary Part 10, What to Eat. 2. Eat plants as they provide the most nutrients from the soil, but make sure the soil is good. If you follow the principles laid out in the previous book summary, you'll be able to distinguish real food from food-like substitutes and dramatically improve your diet. However, the truth is that certain whole foods are actually better than others. So here are the two principles to help you decide which foods should form the foundation of your diet. First, give priority to plants, especially leaves. Though scientists may not agree on why plants are such a healthy food, they all agree that eating them is good for you and certainly won't hurt you. Practically healthy are leaves such as arugula and spinach, whose seeds have absorbed the soil's nutrients. The fact that it's impossible for humans to live without plants and that no culture has ever achieved this should be the reason enough for us to prioritize them. But there are other, more specific reasons too. One of the main reasons is that plants provide us with the antioxidants that detoxify dangerous chemicals. The more antioxidants you have in your diet, the more toxins substance capable of causing disease you'll be able to neutralize. Prioritizing plants doesn't necessarily mean cutting out meat from your diet. Even though meat provides just one vitamin, B12, that can't be acquired from any other food, there's no health reason to exclude meat from one's diet. Remember, however, that although meat acquires many nutrients due to its place at the top of the food chain, this means that it also collects many toxins. The second principle is actually a spin on an old expression. You are what you eat. In this context, it is. You are what, what you eat, eats. As we've seen, the relationship in any food chain is an important one. So when eating meat, milk, or eggs, it's critical that you choose sources that eat more leaves and fewer seeds. The same logic applies to plants. The better the soil, the better the plants. For that reason, you should avoid high-fertilized plants that are not organic. Finally, it's important to have a diverse diet. Focusing narrowly on a specific food is not conductive to a healthy, balanced diet. The best way to maintain balance in one's diet 
is to aim to eat a variety of plants and animals. Summary part 11. Remember, even if you follow a healthy diet, you should make sure you don't eat too much. The focus of nutrism and food science is so squarely on the chemistry of food that they really focus on the sociology or ecology of eating. As a result, nowadays very few people care about the eating experience. So if you can afford it, you should pay more for food and eat less of it. You should pay more for food and eat less of it. Give priority to quality over quantity. As the better the food, the less you'll need to satisfy your hunger. So choose a worthwhile eating experience over mere functional eating. This means appreciating the taste of your food and the atmosphere of a restaurant rather than aiming to simply consume calories. Also, eat proper meals and do it at the dining table. People nowadays hardly ever sit down with the sole purpose of enjoying a meal. Instead, they tend to eat a small amounts during the whole day, usually while they're engaged in some other task. This is a shame, since eating a proper meal, especially with friends or family, greatly enhances the food experience, making it also a cultural and social relationship. And there's an added benefit to dining with company. It can also make you eat less and slower, increasing the chances of you actually enjoying the act of eating. Finally, cook whenever you have the chance. This is the most straightforward way to abandon the easy and cheap processed food of the Western diet. While we tend to consume mostly processed foods, getting into the habit of cooking will help you to eradicate such products from your diet. It also extends the experience of eating to the kitchen, where in preparing your meal, enticing aromas and sneaky nibbles build excitement and increase your appetite so that you'll truly appreciate your meal when it's finally ready. As your great-grandmother would undoubtedly attest, there's nothing more traditional than cooking. Just before we wrap up this summary, I just want to quickly talk about a product that you can download on your phone, which is my 150 best book bit summaries. You can download this on your phone in PDF where you get over two and a half thousand pages of the best book bit summaries that I've done, also with over 50 hours of video and 50 hours of audio content. It's in the link below called 150 Best Book Bit Summaries. Check it out or visit go.bestbookbits.com forward slash 150. That's go dotbestbookbits.com forward slash 150. Hope you can get it. Put it on your phone. Check it out anywhere you are. You can watch, read, or listen to 150 of the best books, bit summaries that I have done. On with the book summary. In review, in defense of food, book summary. The key messages in this book, although nutritionism's slogan is to promote health by consuming specific nutrients, it is actually the main cause of many Western diseases. However, it's possible to get away from the Western diet with just three simple steps. Eat real food, mostly plants, and not too much. Suggested further reading, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. I have done that book summary as well, so you can check that out at bestbookbits.com or search it on our Facebook or Spotify account. We face an overwhelming abundance of choice when it comes to what we eat. Should you opt for the local grass-fed beef or save time and money with cheap chicken nuggets? organic asparagus shipped from Argentina, or kale picked from your neighbor's garden. The Omnimore's Dilemma explains how food in America is produced today and what alternatives to those production methods are available. Thanks for watching and listening. Hope you got something from this. Go out there, have an amazing day. Get your food right. Follow the advice in this book. And if you want to know more, I've got a health section on the playlist on YouTube 
or on bestbookbits.com. Click on the link health and you will see all the health books summaries I have done previously. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye now.